to monitor. I, I feel like I don't have any monitor up here. Uh, maybe my ears are just stopped up. Um, tonight I'm going to begin a Bible study on the Godhead. Um, if I could get some help, uh, Sister Ashley and uh, Brother Joe, Brother Nathaniel, if you guys could help. We've got some packets that we're going to pass out. Um, there should be plenty for everyone to have one here. <coughs> I uh, <coughs> Just a couple of weeks ago, I wrapped up a Bible study on speaking with tongues, um, a Bible study that, uh, for the most part, I derived from uh, some discipleship resources that I uh, received um, from the Global Missions Department of the United Pentecostal Church back in 2005, and I've used them several times since then. It's been a great resource for both for personal study and for church Bible study. Uh, this Bible study is also uh, taken from that packet. I've taught this, but it's been many years, I believe, uh, many years ago that I taught this Bible study on the Godhead. Last, My last Bible study that I just completed on speaking with tongues, um, as has been mentioned, uh, arose from what I felt was, was um, a desire for our church members to be teaching Bible studies, number one, uh, to which we taught into his marvelous light, uh, which is could be taught in a one-hour Bible study or two 45-minute or two 30-minute Bible studies. And I know from my experience uh, teaching that Bible study many times that questions will arise and come out of that Bible study. Uh, and, and that is why I taught uh, those lessons, those two lessons on speaking with tongues, because uh, speaking with tongues uh, does tend to be a subject that a lot of questions circle around and people want to know more information about. And hopefully those Bible studies helped you learn about the subject of speaking with tongues. Another big, uh, a big, I don't know if it's a question, but uh, I do know that sometimes arises from that Bible study into his marvelous light, especially when you are teaching about the subject of being baptized in the name of Jesus and um, and why that's so significant and that is necessary, that it is the baptismal mode that is found in Scripture. Uh, we know that there uh, is only one baptism that is uh, utilized in the book of Acts for salvation purposes, and that is to be baptized by immersion in the name of Jesus Christ, and its purpose is for the remission of sins, as I preached just this past Sunday. But when you are discussing or when you are talking with your Bible study student about baptism in Jesus' name, uh, it almost uh, always comes up, what about Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, right? Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 is a great commission scripture where Jesus is speaking to his disciples before he's received up into glory, ascends into the heavens out of their sight, not to be seen again until the second coming of the Lord in which he said that he wants us to go and to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And um, in my opinion, from of course, I've been well-versed in this. I've studied it many times. I find it, I find it very comfortable, very easy, and very confidently I could explain Matthew 28, 19 and why that points the disciples to baptize new converts in the name of Jesus. 
Number one, when Jesus says that in Matthew 28, 19, you'll notice that he uses the singular use of the word name. Instead of saying the names of Father, Son, and Spirit, he says the name, uh, indicating that is a singular name that encompasses Father, Son, and Spirit. I go on to explain how Father, Son, and Spirit are not proper names. They are titles. And, uh, and then we kind of go from there. Uh, we find that Jesus, the Son of God, was given the name Jesus. We know that according to uh, Jesus' own confession, he came in his Father's name. I believe it's John chapter... Uh, I always get the, the numbers confused in my mind. I want to say it's John chapter 5, verse 43, but I could be about five chapters off. Um, he says, I come in my Father's name. We know in John chapter 14, verse 26, that Jesus says, I'm going to send the Holy Ghost. It will come in my name. Uh, we see that there is one name. That name is Jesus. It's the only name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, according to Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And then I, I take them to a more practical illustration. Uh, typically, I if they have children, I would ask them, now listen, if, if your child came home from school and they had a, an official document, a legal binding document uh, that required the signature of a parent or guardian. And on that document, it literally had a line for the name of a parent or guardian. Would you write parent or guardian? And the obvious answer is no. You would write what? You would write your name. Jesus was instructing his disciples what to do in his absence. If we are to find out how they obeyed his command in Matthew 28, 19, then we read the book of Acts, and we see how Peter obeyed it, and, and, and John obeyed it, and Paul obeyed. He, they obeyed it by baptizing people in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, usually when I'm discussing this and talking to people about baptism, it usually segues to, well, what about God the Son? What about God the Holy Ghost? And it usually brings up questions uh, about, um, about their, uh, their idea of the Godhead being three persons. Now, if you are teaching this Bible study to someone that has had no church influence in their life, and believe it or not, you will find people like this. You will teach Bible studies to people that have no previous church experience, that have not received any official teaching from a church. Um, and what you teach them, here's what's golden about that, is what you teach them is what they then know at all. That's their only knowledge of the Word of God, uh, of God himself, and his revelation to us. But by and large, you will find probably the majority of people will have some understanding, albeit it's an, a mistaken understanding, it's an error, it's false doctrine of the Godhead. They believe God to exist in three separate persons. They believe that God exists eternally as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. And we are going to talk about that uh, later on, not tonight, but we're going to talk about the Trinitarian doctrine of the Godhead. And we are going to show you through Scripture how that has all kinds of mistakes in it, all kinds of errors, and where that came from. But tonight, I want to, I want to teach about the Godhead, simply what the Bible says about the Godhead, about who or what God is. Now, I did review my notes. I, I know that back in May, I did teach 
on a Wednesday night, I believe it was, about knowing God, who and what God is. But that was a very a basic overview of the, the holiness of God, of how he's a spirit, he's invisible, which we're going to touch on right at the beginning of this lesson. But before we go any further, I want us to stand together just in honor. I know you have your packets in front of you, but I, I just want us to stand. I want us to pray. We're going to read these two scripture texts in the box in the upper right-hand corner of the first page, which comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, and 1 Timothy chapter 3, and verse 16. And we're going to read these, uh, these two texts, and then we're going to pray and get into our Bible study. But we, we must be spiritually minded tonight. If we are not spiritually minded, we will not be able to receive the things of the Spirit. And when we talk about the Godhead, they are spiritual things. And we need God to open our understanding to understand the things pertaining to the Scriptures. So let's look at these two Scriptures. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. Let's just read it out loud together. It's right there on the page for us. To wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. We'll stop there. Let's read together out loud. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Read it out loud together with me. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, and believed on in the world, received up into glory. And everyone say amen to the word. Amen. Would you lay your packets or devices down? Why don't we lift our hands right now and let's earnestly, sincerely ask the Lord for understanding. Father, we come before you right now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are so thankful for the rich privilege of gathering together in your name to study your word. And Lord, the very important topic of the Godhead, of understanding who you are, of discovering your identity. And I believe the more we discover who you are, Lord, we will have a better, under, a better understanding of who we are and how we are to live in response to your identity. Lord, I pray have your way in this place tonight. Grow your people in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this all in Jesus' name, and everybody say amen. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Uh, Brother Nathaniel, I appreciate you and the fact that you have a watch on, on you. Can you please let me know when it's 8 p.m.? 8 p.m., okay? Just kind of wave at me, maybe cough insistently, and I'll be like, got it. All right. To start off, uh, we'll, we'll pick up where we left off in our Bible study last, last May, or just past May, but... We need to understand that God is an invisible spirit. We see this in John chapter 4, verse 24, where, where Jesus himself very clearly says, God is a spirit. And then the apostle Paul wrote in his first letter to Timothy in chapter 1, verse 17, Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. And then John again the one who wrote the gospel also wrote the letter 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. He says, no man, flesh, everyone say flesh, no man, no mortal, no corruptible flesh has seen God at any time. So that is fundamental. That is, that's, that's the cornerstone. We need to start there. God is a spirit. 
God is invisible. No man hath seen God at any time. Furthermore, we also need to make sure we have the fundamental understanding that God's full being is beyond the capability of man's understanding. There's many scriptures that could be uh, quoted to support this, but look at Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of both the, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, exclamation point. It's, it's, it's amazing even to consider the depth of his wisdom and knowledge. How unsearchable. You can't find the end of his judgments. His ways are past finding out. Who would know the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who, who can stand before God and tell him or counsel him on how to govern the universe? Or even just planet Earth? Nobody. Nobody even could compute the ways and the knowledge and the wisdom and the judgments of God. And to, to, to grasp this now, uh, I, I know we grasp it loosely because it's such a, a large thing to, to even uh, to, to see or to think about. We then need to be very careful not to try to define God or to, to, to somehow box God into a definition of his person, character, or nature through our own thoughts, our own ideas, or our own assumptions. Our understanding of God must be based upon the infallible witness of his word, the Bible. Okay? So if you're following along, you, you've already filled in some blanks. God is an invisible spirit, and we must find our understanding of God through the infallible witness of his word, the Bible. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 and 9, it says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, saith the Lord. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so if he's that far above us, beyond human comprehension, then how can we find him or how can we discover him? John gives us the answer when he records Jesus saying, search the scriptures, for in the scriptures ye think, or you realize that you would have eternal life, and they, the scriptures, are they which testify of me. So Jesus lets us know that, number one, we could find eternal life, salvation, from the scriptures. But we could also find in the scriptures testimonies or uh, basically a, a more clear picture of this God that we serve. Now, before we get into what the Bible says about God, let's also consider what the Bible says that God is not. Number one, a viewpoint on the persona of God, the first viewpoint that we'll mention is that of atheism. Atheism. Um, that prefix a means something that's not and then theism is the view or study of God, such as theology, the study of God. Atheism, simply put, is the belief that there is no God. If it was me and I was in your seat following along, I would underline belief. Because no matter how you slice it or dice it, an, atheism, an atheist has a set of beliefs. They believe something, just like we believe something. They are believers also. They just believe that there is no God. But Psalm 53 and verse 1, the psalmist wrote, The fool has said in his heart, 
there is no God. And if you want to find out who the fool is, read the book of Proverbs. There's all kinds of definitions of who the fool is. The fool is the one that won't receive instruction. The, the fool is the one that will not listen to wisdom. The fool is the one that will not receive rebuke. And the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The one who refuses to hear instruction, to study the word for himself, will say there is no God. The fool is the one who will look at the universe, the stars, and the planets, and the sun, and the mountains, the rivers, and the oceans, and say there's no God. It's because he refuses to hear the voice of all creation that cries out for their creator. Now, beyond atheism, a lot of people uh, I encounter these days, if, they're not, if they don't believe in a God, they are someone who calls themselves agnostics, or the next viewpoint would be agnosticism. This is kind of a, a big $6 word, A-G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M, agnosticism. Agnosticism is simply the belief that God is unknown or unknowable. Now, I know on the one hand, we just said that God, to really comprehend him fully, it's really beyond our human capabilities. While that's true, the Bible also says in Isaiah 43, verse 10, You're my witness, says the Lord. You're my servant whom I've chosen, that ye may know and believe me. That you may know me and believe me, God says, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. This is the words from the prophet Isaiah. Or actually, it's the words of God to the prophet Isaiah. And he says, you're my witness. Now, even though Isaiah couldn't fully grasp the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God and how great and magnificent God is, it doesn't, it doesn't exempt him from still being able to be a witness that there is a God that has formed us. Jeremiah, his contemporary prophet, chapter 24, verse 7, God says, I will give them a heart to know me and that I am the Lord and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. You know who Jeremiah is prophesying to? Everyone say me. Yeah, he's prophesying about you. He's, he's prophesying of a day that will be filled with his spirit, will be called by his name. This is that day. And he says, this people will have a heart to know the Lord. So we can know him. This, this goes against the idea that the agnostics would promote that God is, he's unknown. He's, he, he, you can't discover him. He's unknowable. No, God is not some kind of distant, far-off God that we can never figure out who he is. But we can know him. In fact, he invites us to know him. Then, letter C is pantheism. Pantheism. P-A-N-T-H-E-I-S-M. Pantheism. That is the belief that God is nature or the forces of the universe. Uh, you know, forgive, me. I'm not trying to be cruel here. Pantheism, someone that, 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 uh, that, that will hug the tree and, and just, this is God. This, the mountain, you know, that, that Mother Earth, right? Mother Earth, Father Time, you know, that looks at the things. And now I know that maybe even we've used those kind of expressions before. But that's really where they come from. The idea that the stars 
or the sun or, or the moon or, the, or, 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 you know, you look at astrologers, people that, that look at, you know, what, what are you, a Capricorn or whatever those other things are. You know, you're looking at these things to define your future. The Egyptians were, were pantheists. They were gods that worshipped the, the sun and the moon and the stars and the river and frogs and, it, and, and cattle. They worshipped all these things. And the beauty of the Exodus was that God, with a strong hand, showed how he was superior to all the things that they worshipped. But pantheism, this is not what we are. God says in Deuteronomy chapter 4 that you should pay attention, look around. When you were at the mountain, he's telling the Israelites, when you were at that mountain where I gave you the law and, and the, the plan for the tabernacle, did you see any, any creature to, to make me look like? Did you see a man or a woman or a beast or a bird? Did you, did you see any kind of creeping thing or fish? Or, or, or did I even speak to you from the sun, the moon, or the stars, or the host of heaven? No, I didn't do that. And so therefore, you are to never try to make an image that's supposed to represent me and worship me at the feet of that image. He says, that's not, that's not how we operate. I'm God. I'm a spirit. I'm invisible. I didn't come to you in some kind of form so that you could worship a form. Letter D would be polytheism. Polytheism, these, these uh, yes, they go hand in hand, but a polytheist, uh, you might look at the, the Greeks or Hindus or Buddhists, uh, the belief that there are many gods, that there, there, more than one god exists. Um, even if you'd run into someone that is a Sikh or follows a, a Sikh religion, uh, they would probably have no problem with you. They would probably even come to church with you and, and, and worship right here in this place. But they would worship very differently in that they believe that the God we serve is true just as we say he is, as the Bible defines him, but he is one among many gods. He's just one among many gods. But Psalm 96 verse 5, it says, For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord is the one that made the heavens. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, it says, We know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other God but one. So we do not worship one of many gods. We worship the only God. There is no other God but him. So what, what about the gods of the Greeks and the Hindus and the Buddhists? And what, what about all of these other gods? Uh, and, 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 and can you deny that, that some of them seem to have some kind of power? What that would be is fallen angels that do have power on earth. We know Satan to be the prince and power of the air. But understand that those are fallen angels created by God. They are not gods. They are not gods. Now, they would like to be gods. Satan tried to make himself as God to ascend up unto the throne of God, and that's why he was cast down. So what are we left with? Letter E would be monotheism. Mono meaning one, single. Monotheism is the belief that there is but one God. And look at these scriptures that support that. 
at the top of the list. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Deuteronomy 4 verse 35, unto thee it was showed that thou mightest know that the Lord, he is God, there is none else beside him. Isaiah 43, 10, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that you may know and believe me and understand I am he. Before me there was no God and neither shall there be after me. There was no God that came before me and there's no God that's going to come after me. And on and on through Isaiah, then to Malachi, have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? Then into the uh, New Testament, Ephesians 4, 6, there is one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. And James chapter 2, verse 9, that great leader of that first century church said, you believe that there is one God, you're doing good. Guess what? The devils also believe that, and they tremble. The devils believe that there's one God. Why would they believe that? Because they exist in the spirit realm. And they fell from heaven. And they know that there is only one omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God of all the universe. So now let's go into the Old Testament. And we're going to look at the Old Testament designations of God. That first blank you're going to fill in, you're going to fill in with four letters. Y H. W-H. Y-H-W-H. In the Old Testament, God revealed himself through the name Y-H-W-H, which is the English rendering of the Hebrew tetragram or tetragrammaton, uh, which simply means four consonants put together. So when you look at Y-H-W-H, it represents the name of God in the Old Testament. Now, the original pronunciation of this Old Testament designation of God is really uncertain. But when the vowels of the word Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for Lord, lower, it'd be lowercase o-r-d, or really lowercase l-o-r-d, either way, because it's just a title that someone is a Lord, like there are servants or slaves, there's a master, there's a Lord. The Hebrew word for that type of Lord is Adonai. And when they when they took the vowels from Adonai and attached them to the consonants in the medieval era, the word Jehovah came about. People started using the name for God of the Old Testament to be Jehovah. Y-H-W-H is also frequently pronounced as Yahweh. Yahweh. So Jehovah or Yahweh. Now, keep in mind, there are, there are some that would try to tell you that uh, you have to and in order to address God, you have to say Jehovah or you have to say Yahweh. Has anyone ever heard of Jehovah's Witness? Okay? Jehovah's Witness. Well, one thing to ask them, if they're so adamant about using Jehovah, ask them, is that even the proper pronunciation? If you're so adamant about using that Old Testament designation of God, the truth of the matter is, if you, if you study it out, we don't even know how it was pronounced. Jehovah, Yahweh, or some other way. We just know that at one point, they stripped those vowels out of the word. And I'll, I'll explain here in just a moment. Y-H-W-H is associated with the Hebrew verb hayah, which means to exist or to become. What it does, it's referring to the eternal self-existent one. The literal translation of Yahweh or Jehovah is, I am 
that I am, or I will be what I will be. I will be whatever I need to be, whatever I want to be. And we find this revealed in the Old Testament to Moses in the book of Exodus chapter 3 when Moses turned aside and saw the bush that was burning but not consumed and God called him to go back to Egypt to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses says, well, what, who should I tell them your name is? Who sent me? And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. Again, that's coming from that verb, Hebrew verb of hayah or hayah. It means I am. And so when you say it twice, I am that I am. So the name Jehovah or Yahweh or YHWH is usually translated as the word, all caps, L-O-R-D, in most Bible versions, especially that of the King James. So anytime you're reading the English Bible, you have a King James version or most other versions, and you see in the Old Testament, L-O-R-D in all caps, those are the places in your Bible where Y-H-W-H actually is, okay? The Hebrew or the Old Testament designation of God. After the writings of the Old Testament were completed, both Jehovah and Jah, which is the abbreviated form of Jehovah, which is translated as I am, were considered too sacred to pronounce. And so to avoid using the name of God in vain, according to the commands given in Exodus and Deuteronomy, the Hebrews decided around 300 years before Christ's birth to stop pronouncing the name altogether. So they used to say it, but about 300 years before Christ, they just silenced it from their vocabulary. And whenever they came upon it, they would instead say, my Lord, or they would say Adonai. Okay? Adonai. Now today, we Christians can speak the name of God freely, since Jesus taught believers to speak in a familiar way to our God. In fact, what does Romans chapter 8 say? We've been given a spirit of adoption whereby we could cry, Abba, Father, which is a very intimate way that a child would look at their parents and say, Father or Abba. We, of course, are never to use God's name or titles carelessly, foolishly, or profanely or in vain. But we can speak the name of God, Lord Jesus, unreservedly and freely. Now, the name Jehovah is used in many, many enlightening ways in the Old Testament. So what you'll have here is you'll have several verses of Scripture where in that Scripture, in your Bible, you will probably have the right-hand column. In some cases, you'll see the words in the left-hand column. But in the left-hand column is the Hebrew words, and in the right-hand column is what it what it means. So Jehovah Jireh literally means the Lord, my provider. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, my healer. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, my banner. Jehovah Kadesh, the Lord, my sanctification. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord, my peace. Jehovah Saboeth, the Lord of hosts. Jehovah Elion, the Lord most high. Jehovah Ro, the Lord, my shepherd. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord, my righteousness. Jehovah Shama, the Lord is there. So what you see is throughout the Old Testament, we would see Jehovah or YHWH, 
Yahweh, the Old Testament name of God, that was being revealed. Remember that the, the essence of that name, we know according to the Hebrew language, is I am, or I am that I am. So what he would do is as he revealed himself to, to mankind, specifically to his people, the Israelites, he would reveal himself as these things. I am your provider. I am your peace. I am uh, your shepherd. I am your righteousness. He would reveal himself in these manners. I am. I am. I am. Now, that's what we would derive now in our English Bible as Lord, all caps. We know that Adonai is Lord, lowercase o-r-d. But then there is a word in the Hebrew, which is El or Elohim, or Elohim. So at B, you would put L-E-L slash E-L-O-H-I-M. And what this is, is a Hebrew word for God. God. So when you look in the, your Bible and you see the word God there, it is coming from the word El or Elohim, or Elohim. The word Elohim is used more than 2,500 times. Keep in mind that Elohim is not a name. It's a title, just like father, son. We've already mentioned that. Also, it is very important for us to understand that Elohim is a plural use of the word El. Now, let me, let me just kind of give you a little context here. Jacob, everyone remember Jacob and Esau? Jacob runs for his life from his brother. His brother hates him, wants to kill him, deceived his father into giving him the blessing. Runs for his life. He, he makes camp as he's running for his life. He, 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 he takes a break for the night, makes some pillows for his, uh, rocks for his pillows. And during that night, he had a dream of, of the ladder that went from heaven to earth. And the angels were coming up and down. And he woke up and he says, I didn't even realize, but this is the very house of God. And he calls the name Bethel. Bethel. Many years later, he returns to the same place. And he meets God, in a sense. He wrestles with the Lord. He says, he now calls the place El Bethel. El Bethel, Bethel meaning house of God. El meaning God of the house of God. Meaning that at one time I was here, this is the house of God. Angels were coming up and coming down. But now I have met God face to face. Now I have met God, the house of God. So El is a Hebrew word or title, God. But most of the time you will find it in, it, in its plural form. Now, the word comes from the Semitic language. Now, this might not mean much to you, but just, just hang on. Consider these things. The Semitic language is an ancient language that most would say predates the Hebrew language, as we know Hebrew today. Semitic comes from the descendants of Shem, hence the word Semitic, Shemetic, okay? Shem is one of the three sons of Noah. When they come up off the ark, they got... Ham, Japheth, and Shem. From Shem was the descendant Abram, or Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob. So we have descended, or excuse me, the Israelites have descended from the righteous line of Abraham, or of Shem. The Semitic language, that ancient language, had the designation or title God as El, or Elohim. 
Now, what people will often do that are Trinitarian, that, that, that kind of know their Hebrew and Greek, they will tell you, well, did you even know that Elohim is plural? And right there you have it. Don't you know that God is a plurality of persons? Well, let's consider that. So in Exodus chapter 6, verse 3, it says that I, God says, I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name Jehovah, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, was I not known to him. This is what God is telling to Moses and to his children of Israel. Now, all the word, although the word Elohim is plural in form, it is always used with singular verbs and adjectives. So in the Hebrew language, the verb and the adjective that is used with this title will determine whether or not it's referring to multiplicity of gods or a single deity. The plurality of the word is actually referring to the plurality of attributes, capabilities, and faculties of God. In fact, most scholars that are worth their salt, that are, even if they're Trinitarian, but they are scholars of the Old Testament, they would agree that the word Elohim refers to just one God. This is also why a Trinitarian would say that they believe in one God. Because you cannot get from the Old Testament that God exists in more than one person. Neither can you from the New Testament, but we'll talk about that later. So what it's doing is when they use the word Elohim, it is saying that there is one God, but he has many attributes or characteristics. Um, an English equivalent that you might be familiar with is if you went uh, to the United Kingdom and you got to be in the presence of the Queen of England or any majestic uh, uh, royal individual, they often would use the majest what's known as the majestic plural. So you, we even do it today. Uh, I'll ask you, hey, would you be able to help me out tomorrow? And, uh, and you, might, you might even say, well, we'll think about it or let's see what my schedule, and, and sometimes when you're doing it, you're not even referring to multiple persons, you're just using that plural use, but you're referring to yourself. In England, where the King James came from, you will actually find that royalty will refer to themselves as in a pluralistic way. Not because there's multiple persons, but because they have kingship or queenship or royalty over multiple lands and they rule over multiple lords. You follow? So when God, the Elohim is used, it's not referring to a multiplicity of persons, but one God that is majestic in so many ways, on so many levels. Let's look at the attributes of God. God is love. God is light. God is holy, God is mercy, God is grace, God is patient. He's gentle, righteous, good, perfect, just, faithful in truth, and that's just naming a few. You see, he is awesome in power and in majesty, but he is one in nature. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 9, you actually find all three Hebrew words denoting God used in one sentence. If you looked at Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 9, and you looked at it in the Hebrew, you would find... The, the writing says, I, the Lord, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, your God, Elohim, am a jealous God. Do you see how Elohim, although it's plural, is used with singular uh, accompaniments in words, in, 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 in uh, grammar? 
So even though Elohim is plural, I, Elohim, am your God, El, singular. Now, beyond this, so that's the Hebrew designations of the, the, the word God or Lord. Now let's look at this, the manifestations of the invisible God. Because we know that God is invisible. No man hath seen God at any time. But in the Old Testament times, we've already referred to one, God would reveal himself in numerous forms or manifestations. So those would be your blanks there. Uh, the one before that, I apologize, a plurality of characteristics, if you're following along. A plurality of characteristics. And then under manifestations of the invisible God, he reveals himself in numerous forms or manifestations. God actually appeared to Abraham in the form of a man. He came, uh, this is where uh, we find that Abraham haggles with God, right? Would you spare Sodom and Gomorrah if there were 50? How about 40? How about 30? How about 20? How about, how about 10? Can you do 10? <laughs> the original haggle. <laughs> he appeared to him as a man. Then we also find that God appeared to Moses in the form of a burning bush. He appeared to the elders of Israel on Mount Horeb as a dark cloud and thunder and lightning. He appeared to Isaiah, the prophet, uh, on a throne that was high and lifted up. And it was surrounded by seraphim angels that had six wings, two to cover their face, two to cover their feet, and two to fly with. Each of these manifestations, however, were just temporary expressions of God's invisible person. Keep in mind, God's a spirit. He's invisible. But he would choose to manifest or appear in a form to mankind. Now, it's important to remember that we cannot see God. No man has ever seen God. All we can see with our human eyes is a manifestation or an expression of God, how he chooses to appear to us. The invisible God himself manifested himself in the flesh of Jesus Christ. God actually robed himself in flesh and came in the form of a servant. This is why we get the New Testament scriptures like Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, where it says that a virgin shall be with child, shall bring forth a son, that shall call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted God with us. Isaiah 9, 6 prophesied of the day of his coming that we would call him Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Who is this applying to? To Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.15, speaking of Jesus Christ, it says that Jesus was the image, the visible form of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. John 14, verse 9, Jesus says unto Philip, have I been so long with you, yet you still don't know me, Philip. If you look at me, you've looked at the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So how do you say then, show us the Father? Then 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, which was one of our key scriptures, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. The powerful yet simple question found in 1 Timothy 3, 16 is so helpful in understanding the revelation of God and his revelation to us through Jesus Christ as our Savior. Ask yourself those questions. Who was this fleshly manifestation? Jesus Christ. All right, I see the sign. I see the sign. Who was justified in the Spirit? Jesus Christ. Who was seen of angels? Jesus. Who was preached unto the Gentiles? Jesus Christ. Who was believed on in the world? Jesus Christ. 
who was received up into glory, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is obviously the subject of these specific events listed in 1 Timothy 3.16. And yet, the Apostle Paul says what? It was God. It was God. The whole time, it was God. Scriptures show us that Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh. And listen, he wasn't just a portion of God. He wasn't just a sliver, a slice of God. But look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. And I'll close with this. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men. And that's where we're at, right? In Christian culture today, by and large, there are strong traditions that are not biblically sound or based. We cannot be spoiled or ruined. You talk about a spoiled brat, a ruined child, right? Spoiled by these philosophies, by these traditions of men after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. Well, who is Christ? In Jesus Christ dwelleth, some will say, all. All the what? Fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus was not a manifestation of portion of God. He was not one-third of God. He was all the fullness. These are two words expressing a totality of being. God fully manifest in the flesh, in the face of Jesus Christ. Can we stand together? Thank you for being such great listeners and patient with me. I, I do want to say this in closing. One of the, one of the uh, reasons that I have found uh, that causes confusion around the subject of the Godhead for modern Christians is we look through the lens of church history and then even through the New Testament to discover God, right? We, we look backwards, and we look through that lens of church history, of all sorts of false doctrines, false teachers, false prophets, and we try to grasp an idea or a knowledge of who God is. I have found that the best way is the Bible way, which is to start at the beginning and then look forward. If there's confusion as to who Jesus Christ is, start with Genesis and look forward. And you will find from Genesis to Revelation, that Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. He was always in the mind of God. Or as John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was God. It was manifest in flesh, and we beheld the only begotten of the Father. Next week we'll continue this lesson, and we'll see where it takes us. But let's, right now, why don't we lift up our hands and let's just begin to worship in closing this one God that we have the privilege of knowing and serving. Heavenly Father, we come before you right now so thankful to be adopted as your children into your family. And Lord God, we thank you for this Bible study where we are grasping and gaining knowledge and understanding of who you are. 
and Lord God, what the Bible says about you. And from there and there only can we get a true concept of who you are and an understanding. Let us search the scriptures. Help us, your body, this church family, to grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, to know who you are, so that we might then go and be witnesses of you and tell the world about you and not be insecure, lack confidence, and having conversations about deity, about the Godhead, about who God is, that we could tell whoever will listen, Lord, about this great God that we serve and that we are in relationship with. You are holy. You are spirit. You are invisible. But yet you have appeared to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Uh, if you would like, we could hold on to the packets if you want to put your name on it. And you could put it just up here on the platform. Or you're welcome to take it home with you. And uh, we'll also have more copies next week as well in case you forget yours. Remember our announcements. God bless you. You're dismissed in the name of the Lord.